How can moderate politicians survive in today's polarized political environment? What roles can moderates play in American politics? How does the influx of money into political races affect members of Congress? From the Chicago Policy Review and the University of Chicago, this is Chicago Policy Radio. Today we have Aaron Roseberg speaking with Lincoln Davis, the Democratic former U.S. Representative from Tennessee, and Sue Kelly, the Republican former Representative from New York. Lincoln Davis was the mayor of Birdstown, Tennessee, before joining the U.S. House of Representatives for eight years, from 2003 to 2011. Sue Kelly served for 12 years in the U.S. House from 1995 to 2007. You come from a district that leans Republican, you come from a district that leans Democrat, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think yours does now, doesn't it? Mine, mine is now a Democrat district. Yeah. Mine was basically my district. The district I represented is purple. It, it's a, a true swing district. It'll vote for whoever they want, and they're highly educated. A lot of them are very wealthy because it's a Wall Street bedroom community. Uh, so they don't pay a whole lot of attention to party. They pay a lot of attention to policy, and so for them, you never know. After I, I there was a I after I lost for four years there was a Democrat that represented it. Then for two years there was a <coughs> Republican woman. And now we've had for four years of a Democrat man. It will continue like that probably. The uh, in the district I represented in two thousand two there were only three Republican seats flipped to a Democrat. Mine was one of those. Van Hollen uh, and uh, and Merlin and Tim Bishop from New York was the third one that actually replaced the Republican that had been serving, Van Hillary had served. And Al Gore lost his congressional district in 2002 when he ran for president, even though he left, the, he left that seat in 84 and he became the darling, he was the darling of Tennessee politics uh, and became the vice president, but he lost his old congressional district in the 2000 election, mm -hmm. so yes, it was Republican, and, it, and I'm not sure exactly what convinced me that I could win that seat in 2002, but we were able to win based upon the issues of the day, and, and, uh, and yes, it, it is Republican today, too. So my question is, what are the challenges that you were faced with as, as a member of Congress representing a district that, to what, you know, to even a small degree, lean the other way when you were from the opposite party. So w what challenges did you face representing your, your district? I think I think marginal seats, and if you happen to be someone who, if you're a Republican in a marginal Democrat seat or a Democrat in a marginal Republican seat, it really requires you to be on your toes. You literally have to spend perhaps a whole lot more time uh, in, in looking at the policy and issues of the day, positions that you're, uh, those that you represent have, uh, you also w will have to learn very quickly that y you are the congressman for that district and not for America, even though you vote for what's best for America, but you're the congressman for that district. And whomever the leadership may be, you should not relegate that authority to them to require you or force you or, or nurture you into a position where you have to vote against what you think of the wishes. So I, I believe perhaps some of the best congressmen we, that we had and that we have today in Congress or those who are in marginal seats or, or very competitive seats, because they really have to work harder, become more informed, 
uh, of the issues and, 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 and know the heart and soul of those that they represent. I think it's very positive to have that. These seats that we have today where the, uh, I think maybe 95, 90 or 95% of the districts today, the Republicans going to win that seat or Democrats going to win their seat. I mean, there, there are no marshal seats left anymore. Very few of those, probably less than 20 or 25, and that doesn't bode well for the U.S. So what, what types of challenges did you face? And I guess, you know, dealing with your party, dealing with the media, while you were trying to represent the interests of your Congress, of your, of your constituents? Well, I think Lincoln put it pretty well. The challenge, the, the one challenge you face, always, is when you make votes that oppose the policy that your party wants you to, that, that wants you to make. And the reason you do that is that your job is to represent the people that you are elected to represent. All those people pulled a lever because they, they, are, they sent you to Washington for exactly what the Founding Fathers wanted. You're their representative. You're their spokesperson in Washington. You're not there because of anything you believe. You're not there to, to stand up and proselytize anything. You're there to represent your people. Uh, the, the, part of the problem is when you go against your party and the party structure goes again goes after you, and that is one of the reasons that have helped. That's one of the things that has helped to drive apart um, the two parties on Capitol Hill, because in recent years, outside groups, thanks to the Supreme Court and Citizens United uh, decision, as Lincoln points out, um, the, in recent years, those the decisions about who gets to run on the party line are often made in primaries. In a primary, the parties become very active. If they have a person that is running who is going to tow, they know will tow the line, like in the, Repu in, in the Republican Party, if it's a good, strong, conservative person running against a moderate Republican, the our conservative groups do a, a swarm. And the same thing has happened with the, with the uh, Democrat Party. Lincoln would have a hard time now running in, uh, in, from Tennessee because the liberal Democrats group would, groups would swarm in and dump money into the district to take out Lincoln. People dumped money into my district to get rid of me. Why? I wasn't a conservative Republican. And Lincoln isn't, is, is a, isn't a uh, liberal Democrat. We're moderates. But the, the reason that moderation is good is that these people on the outside who are strongly partisan are hot about all the issues. The moderates are cool. They have to be cool. They represent the, they represent the cooling center of what it means to be in Congress. It's the hardest work that anyone does as a congressperson is be, being a moderate and working with the other side to work the legislation so that each side, nobody gets everything, each side gets enough that they can vote for the bill. That's how bills get through. And when you see the parties tearing their own out of office, the people who were capable of doing that, then you get this highly polarized situation, and that's where we are. If you want to correct that, nobody should vote for these the people who are strong on, on either side. The, everybody should gang up and vote for the middle because those are the people who get stuff done. 
So you described the role of outside interest groups uh, in putting pressure on you and putting pressure on moderate candidates. Is that the primary pressure point, or did you feel pressure from your party, from your party in Congress, to vote in certain ways or act in certain ways? Oh, sure. You always get that. I mean, you know, I get pressure from my wife to agree with what she's doing, and sometimes I pressure her to agree with me. Yeah, you get pressure from your party, but but. There's, to me, uh, pressure helps you grow. It makes you a stronger person and gets you a whole lot more respect. You don't have to yield to that. If you're weak, you do, and so therefore you really don't need to be in Congress. And same for you. The founding fathers expected there to be controversy. That is exactly what the House of Representatives is supposed to do. Get together and argue it out. And they felt that was a good process because that meant that they would have a stronger, more solid bill and stronger, more solid law for the, for the nation. That's not wrong. And the pressure comes from that, from people who are passionate about their causes. And people are now passionate about being a Democrat or a Republican. And instead of arguing and their controversy relying necessarily on what's good for the nation is what's good policy for that particular that particular political entity uh, what's good policy for the democrats what's good policy for the republicans it's built about a power grab to stay in power nobody wants to lose power it's much nicer to to control what's going on in the house if you're in the majority and you see that as something that's different than it was, say, 50 years ago? It's absolutely. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I, think, I think we need more American Republicans and more American Democrats. America first, party next. But that's not the case today. And when you talk about being a Democrat and Republican, each side is moving further away from the center with, their ide with, with the ideology that they're expressing today. And so it's... Uh, we. Our forefathers could have never envisioned a nuclear weapon stopping World War II in 1945. So when we talk about what the forefathers intended, they didn't, they, they, they didn't have a vision for jet airplanes flying through our skies. Uh, they didn't have a vision for railroads transversing all across this country. Uh, it wasn't, at that time, just barely steam engines were becoming a reality. And if they didn't have the pop-off valve, that's the release valve. Uh, that blow themselves up. Um, uh, so so the, there, there were a lot of things that happened in America and to our lives that our forefathers never envisioned. But what they did do is they gave us a constitution that said you will be governed by laws, not by men. And so all the things that we've seen change in our country, many, in a lot of cases where government has gotten involved in, in, the, in the lives of individuals. Some folks say it gives them a better opportunity, it gives economic advantage. Uh, to some of the downtrodden and the poor. And some folks say it doesn't really, it just puts them in more poverty because they're waiting on a gift from the government from the rest of us taxpayers. So th th that is an issue that, that, that we'll debate for a long time. But our Constitution gave us the authority to do just exactly that. And it also gave us a safety valve where we wouldn't blow up called the Supreme Court that makes decisions on whether or not that is or will be constitutional. And if the president feels that it's not, he vetoes it and it takes a two-thirds majority override. So we really have some pretty good, we have some pretty good safety valves uh, when it comes to passing laws. And, and it's much more difficult to pass. George Bush, I don't think, vetoed a single bill 
through 2006. But he'd started in 2007 because there was a Democrat majority in the House and Senate. Yep. So the conversation so far has focused a lot on sort of external factors relating to polarization like money and parties. I, I want to. I found this chart when I was doing some research, and it basically what they found was this was by the uh, National Media Research Planning and Placement Group, and they looked at purchases of alcohol and spirits. And what they found was that you can essentially determine someone's partisan leanings based on their what they ordered at a bar. So the question is: Is po political polarization? causing people to become more polarized in other ways, or are we seeing a broader pulling apart and political polarization is a symptom of that? Which which way is the causation going? Are, are the voters pulling the party? Yeah, I think you understand. No. What, what, I'm, what I want you to understand is something that's very significant that's been going on in this nation. We are not the nation now that we were in 1974. We are not the nation that we were even 20 years ago. Our nation is changing. When you're talking about what beverages people drink as to determining, and you can determine what their political party is, go and look where those people live. This nation is more and more moving into cities off the land. First, that's my first point. My second point is that this nation is more and more moving into enclaves where people live that, who are people like themselves. So you have enclaves of, that are, they, they were mixed, racially mixed, and now they're more and more white, or more and more, more and more Haitian, or something else. And this has led to an increase in polarization. And the, because if you look at the demography of who votes on what, Take a look at, at President Obama's last two elections. The African American community voted 90, above 90 percent, and conti would continue to do it every day, whereas the the white community did not. Other communities had their block votes, and they really did across across the nation. It worked that way. Why? I think it's because we are becoming less diverse in our living patterns as a nation. And those have played into the fact that the pe where people live, they are more and more into cities, and that's where you find the largest numbers of electoral votes. If you look at a map of the last three elections for president, there's vast, vast stretches of red. And on the coast, there are, there's blue. And there's a shot of blue in the middle of the country, starting in Chicago and running north. Those things are, then become very evident as to, these things, I think, then become very evident as to factors outside of anybody's control on why we are more and more electing a, a less diverse population on Capitol Hill in terms of red versus blue. I, I think she's exactly right. And, and, and then you can add on to icing. I think in, in 1983, when the Furnace Doctrine was allowed to expire, which meant that if you were ABC, CBS, or NBC, if you expressed one opinion, then the other side also had the opportunity to have that opinion. And so with, with that with that expiration, and it was not renewed, 
it, uh, it, it, it really would have been changed anyway. But I'm just saying that that brought on a, a huge getting together of uh, of certain uh, ideological groups to put a strategy together of how they were going to how this first doctrine religious groups were part of that. Uh, and so, in the areas where I'm from, you you a large number of the radio stations you hear if you you push the dial, it'll come up to be, especially in the lower numbers, you're going to come up on a, on a religious channel. And it happened to be in the South, that religious channel has a political bias, evangelical political bias. And so you know what you're going to be hearing. But even more than that, I never heard of Rush Limbaugh. And in 1994, I ran for state senator. In 1996, I heard of Rush Limbaugh. Now, who's that? But then I went to the radio station. I'm like, Gosh, are you sure? that? What are they doing? Well, there's no furnace doctrine. But on the other hand, the advent CNN cable news network, what, the late 70s, early 80s, started providing us news based upon report, if you call it that. But then now we have the satellite airways are not regulated by the federal government. So now we have a proliferation of, of unbelievable masses of communication, electronic. And then we also have unbelievable blogs all sources that you can get to find someone who agrees with your philosophy. And that being the case, that's who you listen to. I think that also is driving partisanship edge about to this thing. Now, you both have mentioned uh, repeatedly that you said you had friends who were Democrats who got defeated in 2010. You said you had friends yeah. who were Republicans who were defeated in 2006. Um, when you were members of Congress, did you find yourself working with those folks who were sort of in the middle, or was there some sort of a, a group or a cluster of people who worked together that you found, or is it just too small to have any kind of... No, we, we often, in two, especially after the Democrats got majority, our Blue Dogs would reach out to the Tuesday group of which she was a champion of. Uh, Tom Davis was a champion of that as well, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, who, who had been the, uh, the chairman of the, of the Republican National C Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, those were folks who, who, who the, our leadership would go sit down and talk with and kind of get an idea of, of what we wanted to do and, and how we could work together. That I continued all up to 2010. Because many of us who, who, who were centrist in the Democrat Party uh, didn't necessarily fear our leadership, but there were things that was happening that we didn't agree with, and so we wanted to be sure that we had at least enough force to go to them and say, look, here's what's going to happen. Uh, the 57 Blue Dogs impacted legislation a whole lot more than most folks realize. And I'd say the Tuesday group impacted legislation a whole lot more than folks realize on we the Republican side. And one of the interesting, he's talking about the Blue Dogs, which were the centrist Democrats, and the Tuesday group, which were the centrist Republicans. And very, very many times when I was in Congress, we would link together with the Blue Dogs and work with the Blue Dogs to get the, get the legislation. We could block anything. If we block, if we put those two groups together, or we could force the issue and get it voted on, if we work together, mm. and we did. But now those groups are so small; they, they don't exist anymore. And what would happen as well is that, that you would see a bill. It would go through the rules committee. The rules committee is fixed. I mean, you have uh, uh, what uh, nine and four, uh, which means you have thirteen. You have you, you have nine in the majority and four in the minority. So it, when you go to the rules committee, they determine what you're going to debate on the floor. It's the most powerful committee that's there as far as legislation is concerned. And only certain amendments are going to be authorized and allowed to go on. They listen to those and they agree these are going to be uh, allowed to be offered. They know which ones are going to pass and which ones are not. And so they would put those 
supposed to build up, the Rules Committee would, the leadership would fill, the vote was there. There are times when we blue dogs would sit down with the leadership and say, we're not voting that way. And they'd pull the bill. They'd come to the floor and hammer and beat around, and then they'd get up and say, we'll move the bill back to the committee. And then they're back to the Rules Committee. And you, I'm sure that happened on your side as well. Yeah, what's interesting is I have with me a, uh, a reprint from the newspaper that said Gingrich, Gingrich um, has approached the moderates. He can't go conservatives along with the conservatives along, and it's because a lot of conservatives weren't going to back something that Gingrich wanted because it was a more moderate bill, and the conservatives said, "No, we're not going to vote for that." And there were a lot of the, a lot of those people that were conservative that were on the rules committee, but there were more moderates on that, the floor. Uh, on that at that year. There were more moderates, and. and uh, the guy running the committee was a moderate, and so they, he was able to get the bill on the floor and get it voted only with the help of the moderates. Mm. And that's true with a couple of bills that Nancy Pelosi ran when she was the, the, the speaker. Um, the, these, these, they have to, we have to work together in order to get things onto the floor. But if you play the numbers right, uh, you can you, you can work. They would work, the speakers. Eat, who, no matter who's speaker, they can get the stuff on the floor by putting together moderates. Well, because now there's so few moderates, it's very hard to get and to have for the speakers to have control. This is one of John Boehner's problems. The, the, the major items of legislation, for instance, I bet you go back and check. I checked mine. John Boehner and I voted on, on legislation that passed. I'm not talking about would come up for the question and then vote on the rule. Those are generally pretty much you just take a partisan line on those with this question on the rule and you vote for the rule to move the debate to the floor. Uh, so it, those are pretty much straight line, party line votes. But when it comes to final passage of the legislation, John Bannon and I voted 85-90% of the time every year I was there. On this, so did Pelosi if she voted. I mean, the major pieces of legislation that passed, whether it's health care, whether it was energy, whether it was TARP, or whether it was uh, Recovery Act, all those were were made better by centrists in Congress. We don't have centrists today. Thank you for listening to Chicago Policy Radio, production of the Chicago Policy Review and the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Our podcast was produced and edited by Daniel O'Keefe. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ryan Gee. You can find us at www.chicagopolicyreview.org. Thank you for listening and join us next time.